Hey, if you've got your Bible, would you go with me to John chapter 17 this morning? John chapter 17. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. If you're a visitor, I've been preaching through this Gospel. If you're a visitor and you're wondering about reading your Bible and you're wondering, where do I even begin? Let me invite you to say that the Gospel of John is a wonderful place to begin reading God's Word. And if you're a Christian this morning and you're hurting or you're tired or you feel like your Christian life is a little bit sputtery and you're wondering, where do I begin? How do I find my way back? Let me also invite you to start in the Gospel of John. It's a series of conversations with Christ. I want to read the first three verses of John 17 and remind us again that this is Jesus actually praying. Contrary to what we often say in the West, that the Lord's Prayer, which is actually how the Lord taught us, it's an example of prayer, the Lord's Prayer is found right here. This is the longest recorded prayer in all the Bible of Jesus. He prayed this with his disciples listening, and here's what he said. When he had spoken these words, which is referenced back to chapter 13 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, likely having left the Passover meal somewhere in the Kedron Valley. Stopped there and said, guys, let's, let's just pray. Lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him, that's Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, that is what God has done for Christ. We looked at this last week on Easter Sunday. Now, here is the verse for today. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, that is God, have sent. I want to talk about eternal life, but I want to talk about the Jesus version of eternal life. J.M. Boyce, who is a Presbyterian pastor in the United States, he articulates this verse very, very well in John 17, 3. It is one of the verses that I have actually, of all of the 26 verses of John 17, have been most excited to unpack for you. And he says, One of the things that has always interested me in my study of the Word of God is the number of ways in which one may speak of salvation. In fact, he says, it's been more than just interesting to me. And it is important because it is often the case that Christians get locked into one particular way of talking about salvation and thus cannot change. Even when the person to whom you are talking fails to understand their terminology and that needs to be corrected. And if there was ever a statement of someone that is true in St. John's, Newfoundland, in Newfoundland and Labrador, when we think of quote-unquote Protestantism or evangelical Christianity, largely for the last 500 years on this province and in this city, if you were to talk to people who claim to be Christians, they're likely going to give you one of three expressions as a means to say something happened to them. You're likely to hear something like, I'm saved, or I've been born again, something Deanna read about in John chapter 3, or even more popular, especially among certain stuff in the 80s and 90s of this, of this country or this province, was I was converted. 
I grew up hearing those expressions. I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm converted. But can I ask all of us something this morning? What do we mean when we say those things? What is it exactly that you and I are clinging to when we say, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm converted? Or maybe can I ask, what is it that you want others to know about you when you say that? When you you are talking about Jesus Christ, Christianity, the gospel, do we tend to talk about it in terms of, hey, I'm going to heaven. I grew up in a world where I was taught how to evangelize. I literally, as a teenage boy, would go door to door in many of the streets of this city, and I was taught how to knock on a door, and someone would answer it, and I was ready with this response. Hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? (laughs) Some of you are laughing because maybe you've been there, all right? I got to be honest that introduction didn't usually go well. But I also have to be honest, this particular month, the month of April, as a church, we've tried to encourage you to be reading through Mark's gospel. Now, I've just given a plug on the gospel of John, and I firmly believe it, but I've discovered, even as I've been reading through Mark this uh, month, Of all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark has been the one that I probably have read the least, and I have thoroughly enjoyed reading the Gospel of Mark. But I've also been shocked, shocked at how uh, verbose Mark is, how direct and blunt he is as he describes the event of Jesus' life and describes the event of the disciples and the religious establishment and the Jews and so on and so forth. And I was struck as we were reading on Mark 7 because when I ask you, what do we mean by I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm converted, Mark 7 is a whole chapter of religious people who claimed to know God, arguing with Jesus on whether or not he is God. Now, let the irony of that settle in, all right? That's what he's doing. And since I'm on this vein of trying to be honest, I've been around so-called Christianity for most of my life. Many of you know my story. My parents were born again two weeks apart when I was five years old. I've been around this most of my life. And I've learned that we have a language in church, especially in evangelical church, don't we? We've got words and terms and expressions that we use. And many of you here, they're quite familiar. Some of you here are just learning them and you're like, man, I'm fascinated by this. But sometimes you probably just think, man, they're weird. It's funny because Christians have certain values, certain assumptions about life. We have assumptions about the culture. And well, if we're going to be honest here, we have have opinions on just about everything. And I grew up in a world where we specialized in opinions. I used to, when I travel, I tell people as I try to describe Newfoundlanders, I say, if you put four Newfoundlanders in the room, there are six opinions. And I also tell you that Newfoundlanders specialize in the fact if you're here and you don't have an opinion, we'll gladly give you one. All right? But you know, truer words, I was raised in a very kind of legalistic world, and opinions were free and flowing. We had opinions about music and about church. In the world I grew up in, we had uh, opinions about television and movies, and should you go to movies, and what rating of movie could you watch? I know this, I grew up in a world where we had opinions about versions of the Bible, We even had versions about things like sermons and doctrines. There's a reason, especially in Baptist world, where we use the expression that most people for lunch have roast pastor, not roast beef. 
But along the journey, as I went from teenager to young adult, from young adult to middle age, and now middle age, looking at old age, or at least feeling like I'm getting there, one thing I've discovered about myself and others in the Christian world is when you really press folks or really ask them to either defend their opinion or back up their opinion, or at the very least, show me how your opinion actually matters in real life, you are met with little more than personal experience or the regurgitation of what someone they love or trust has told them. Far too often I've heard my my life growing up is, I was taught or I listened to. When I was a boy, my father would not leave a house on any given week until he'd heard Jimmy Swaggart finish a sermon. As I became an adult in the worlds that I would process in with pastors, it was all about John MacArthur or David Jeremiah. Often I will hear people say, oh, I read this book by Warren Worsby, or just recently when I was in the U.S., someone came up to me after a service and said, Pastor Steve, have you read this book by Joyce Myers? I hear far too much of, well, according to my experience, then this is truth. I hear tons of I don't like and I don't agree. You've heard me use the term that we chicken McNugget our Bible. We treat the Bible like it's a magic eight ball. We just take it and we flop it open, and wherever it is, that must be the verse for me. And yet, far too often, I've seen those types of things used in arguments and on social media to harm and hurt and attack far more than to bring peace or love. I see far too little of few verses like Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, or 1 Thessalonians 5 ever shared or talked about. Now, when I say that, what would have provoked Paul to write to a church named Thessalonica and actually say these three things to them now? Because many of you know them as soon as I say them. There's songs written about them, but, but let them fall on your heart and mind here this morning. Paul would write a church and say this, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, not in some things or most things, in everything give thanks. And you know what he followed that up with? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know what I hear far too little of? Hey, Steve, or hey, Pastor Steve, can I share what I've been reading in my Bible lately? I've just been praying over this and meditating on it. Can I share what I'm learning about God or Jesus or myself? But do we get to where Lemuel Haynes said when he said this, I have been examining myself and looking back upon my past life, but I can find nothing in myself and nothing in all my services to recommend me at the bar of Jehovah. Christ is my all. His blood is my only hope of acceptance. So for today, just for a few more minutes this morning, would you come along on a journey with me? And I want to get one thought across, and often when you've heard the interns and the church planners, we try to teach them, Steve and I, how to put the sermon in a sentence. But when I try to do this, I want to ask you this question. How often have you asked someone to pray for you? 
as you can imagine, as a pastor, especially here in Newfoundland, I don't know why this expression seems to come up in Newfoundland a lot. I get asked a ton, hey, would you, pastor, would you say a little prayer for me? And that's usually the way, it's a little prayer. They don't want a medium-sized prayer or a big prayer. They just want me to say a little prayer. They, they must think I have a lot of inside power or something because it's just, pastor, would you say a little prayer for me? And sometimes in my flesh, I want to go, little prayer, <laughs> right? And I'm being facetious here, but we, we get asked that, don't we? How many times would you say to someone, would you pray for me? And can I ask you all this morning something that maybe you haven't thought of before, even in our church, but when was the last time or have you ever asked Jesus to pray for you? I want you to think about that for a minute. Once again, here we are in church on the middle of April of 2023, and what do you and I really think Hebrews 4 is all about anyway? Remember when the preacher preaches that, he says, since then, we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and this is who it is, Jesus, the Son of God. So what is the reality of that? He says, then let us hold fast our confession. Now, what's our confession? Our confession that we know and trust in Jesus Christ. And so if that's a reality, he says, because we know we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we say that if Jesus Christ is our Savior, We have someone actively right now in heaven sat down at the right hand of God the Father who is our intercessor and our advocate and the one who is our propitiation, all these fancy church words that we use, but we have one who is in every respect tempted by the hurts and the trials of life as we are yet without sin. So because of that, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So what do we draw near to the throne of grace to do? Is it not then to say and plead to find that we may receive mercy and find grace in our, to help in time of need? Well, how do you do that? If it isn't, Jesus, I need you to talk to the Father for me. I mean it. Have you ever asked Jesus to pray for you? And if so, what did you ask Jesus to go to the Father with? Or if you're only hearing this for the first time, what would you ask Jesus to pray for you? But do you and I realize that in John chapter 17 is actually Jesus praying for himself, for the disciples, and for us? That's you and me. I asked the guys to play that video because to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. So when Jesus prays, he prays that we, you and me, would know God and himself. Now now stop and think about that. Jesus' version of eternal life is knowing God. And that's why I wanted to show you this video because it reminds me over and over again of John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. Do you remember what it says? She even quoted it. So the woman left her water jug and went into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. And she wasn't saying that in shame and guilt. It was probably the first time in her life she didn't have to say it in shame or guilt. She said it in safety and with love. She said it with enthusiasm and passion. Can this be the Christ? So I want to ask us to think through eternal life as Jesus defines it. To see how many, tragically, in 2023, Mark Jones has written a book that I've recommended called The Prayers of Jesus, and he puts it like this, there are far too many in evangelical churches who believe in, sacrifice much for, and devote themselves in service 
to God, and he puts that in brackets, to God, but he says, but they do so in vain if they fail to know the only true God as Christ teaches in John 17, 3. See, this, my friends, is why I had Deanna read John 3 as she did. Did you notice the interplay between Jesus and Nicodemus? Jesus had to challenge this high-ranking Pharisee, this teacher of the law, and he says, don't, don't you know this? Don't you know what? How to be right with God? And I ask you to join me. Let's allow God's Spirit through God's Word about God and His Son to not just define eternal life, but also give us the opportunity right here and now to actually have it. So if you're taking notes, here's my first point from this verse It's not very profound or very complicated, but it is profound. And it's to know Jesus and Christ or to know God and Christ means actually knowing something about them. You're not going to do it ignorantly. Now, obviously, if we are to know what eternal life is, then we must base it on one of a couple things. And every one of you here and everybody in this city does this. Not one of you here is not doing this. We either define eternal life as we define it. It's my view of it. It's my view of heaven. It's my view of what happens after death. It's my view of of the afterlife or whatever. Or everyone in here is allowing someone or someone else to define it. So option one is you define it. Option two is somebody else defines it. Or option three is God defines it. And here in our passage, in our text, Jesus actually prays, this is eternal life. Again, J.M. Boyce says, our text in John gives another set of terms for salvation. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And here the operative term is knowledge. That's the most important word, that they may know. So, in other words, knowledge of God is salvation. By contrast, not knowing God, and if I can meddle a little bit, and not wanting to, is sin. The truth of knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, I think is terribly appropriate today. Kent Hughes, a pastor down in the United States, says, it is doubtful that even during the dark ages there was ever as much ignorance in the English-speaking world as there is today regarding the Bible and the person of Christ. We have never lived in an age when more people have access to a Bible and never read it. And just about every home, we have all kinds of Bibles. We can do it on our, on our phones. You can do anything. And yet, there's more ignorance today of what the Bible actually says. Hosea, who Steve preached through, said in Hosea 6.4, that the people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Paul spoke of it to his own people. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, they were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And my friends, especially young people, young adults, the liberal theology of today or the modern theology of the day de-emphasizes Bible reading and Bible study, and it's left far too many people who say they believe the Bible while being ignorant of its content. And I want you to hang on to this because in a little while, just before I'm done, I'm going to quote someone who almost everybody in this room knows, and this will show you why it's very important. But when we speak along these lines, we must be careful to define what we mean by that knowledge that is salvation. 
Because I'm not talking about mere awareness, as in, okay, okay, Steve, I look, I know there might be a God out there. I believe in a higher power. I know there's some sort of force out there. If you look at the uh, latest census from Canada, Steve and I laugh at this because one of the fastest growing groups in that census was people of Canada who said they trust the force from Star Wars. And Steve and I have a great discussion about whether people are just being cheeky or that, like that's become their religion now. So we're not talking about mere uh, awareness, and I'm also not talking about simply information as in, I can recite what Christians believe about the Trinity, I can tell you what the Bible claims about God. Nor is Jesus praying about knowing God in an eternal life way is not simply experience. And here's where we can get off the rails, especially in Newfoundland, because we are an emotional, experience-driven people. We feel stuff. And a lot of our lives are lived by, I've had an experience. Jesus is not praying as like, I was on Signal Hill one day, or I was out on Cape Spear, and, and a whale broke, and, and I just, it all spoke to me, and God spoke to me. Now, careful, I want you to listen to me. Although experience is better than either simply awareness or information, it's still not enough. The experience of a person who goes out into nature or has a near-death experience or simply is around the house on a summer night and looks up into the twinkling heavens and says, I've experienced God, so don't give me any of your theology. Don't give me your Bible. I've experienced the real thing. With all due respect, no, you haven't. See, we may believe that such a person is imagining his experience or her experience and particularly if it has nothing to do with the Jesus Christ, but he or she is not necessarily imagining it. I don't want to demean experience. I'm just telling you that experience all by itself is not enough. He or she may actually have experienced something very profound and moving, but still moving as this may be, it is not what Jesus meant when he spoke of eternal life consisting of knowledge. And I want you to realize that knowledge cannot be just God alone either. Notice in our video, the woman said to be known is to be loved and to be loved is to be known. And she's referencing as she tries to give us a modern view of that woman at the well. You see, for eternal life is also knowing yourself. And if you're going to know God and you can't know God and not know yourself, this is why that woman at the well is so important. So when Jesus is praying, what is this knowledge? It's what he was talking to Nicodemus about in John 3. It's a personal encounter with God in which because of his holiness, we become aware of our sin. And when we become aware of our sin, consequently of our deep personal need, and then by his grace, we turn to Christ who is our Savior. This knowledge occurs only when God's Holy Spirit is at work and makes it possible. And his spirit is always changing us, issuing in a heart response to God and true devotion. This is involved even in Christ's brief statement where he stresses that the knowledge of which he is speaking is knowledge of the true God and of himself, which brings me to my next point. Knowing God and Christ means having an intimate relationship with them. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, he looked up to heaven and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that I may glorify you. And the result of this mutual glorification is then verse 3, eternal life for those who believe. So in other words, Jesus is praying, new creation made possible by the cross 
is eternal life. Why do you think Jesus told his disciples back in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life? See, this is not just intellectual apprehension. This is salvation knowledge, experiencing Christ as Savior, coming to know the God who gives salvation. I love one commentator who said, God is clothed in splendor. We sang, right? How great is our God, the splendor of our King. The Jesus, our God, is clothed in splendor in the eyes of those who perceive what has been achieved by God himself in the cross, in the resurrection, in the exaltation of his Son. So in other words, to see God's glory is to be given eternal life. So Jesus doesn't want you and I to miss something. The two themes are drawn together in verse 3. Eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than the knowledge of the true God. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Okay? It's not just everlasting life. It's knowledge and a relationship with the everlasting one. That is, to know God must mean you have received what the introduction of John's gospel is all about in John chapter 1, verse 18, when he says this, for from his fullness, God's fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Well, what does that mean? Because John says, for the law was given through Moses. He goes back in the Old Testament, and he references Moses, but he says, grace and truth, mercy and truth, love and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then he says this most powerful statement, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. But then he says, he, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Notice how John references Moses. What do you think he was thinking about? Have you ever thought about Moses' life? When Moses first goes out into the wilderness and he has that burning bush experience, what's the thing that God says? Moses, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. When Moses goes up into Mount Sinai to receive the, the law of the Lord and he says, I want to see God. And I talked about this last week and how God hid him in the cleft of the rock. What does he say? You, no one can see God and live. Why? Because of his holiness. Why do you think Peter fell before the Lord in Luke chapter 5 after Jesus showed his power over nature? Simon Peter said, he fell down at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What did Peter, James, and John do upon seeing the transfiguration of Jesus? They fell and were afraid. Why? They were acutely aware of Jesus' perfection and their lack of it. See, this claim agrees with the whole message of the Bible. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 9 said, Let not man or woman boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his richness. And then he says, But let him who her boasts boast in this, that he or she understands and knows me. What is he going to know? What is she going to know? That I am the Lord, and I love this, who practices steadfast love. We all love that part, right? I want a God of love, but steadfast love and steadfast justice. There's his holiness and steadfast righteousness in the earth. You cannot know the sender without knowing the one he sent. That's what John 17.3 is all about. Life is knowledge. Not the trivial type of, of, of stuff gained while you cruise the internet or that's worth a Google, as my middle boy says. 
right? We're talking about an actual experience of God in a personal way, an intimate relationship, the kind of knowledge that leads, by the way, to a changed life, to true salvation. So, John 17, 3 is a knowledge of God's holiness and his love. Again, I go to the woman at the well. Is there anyone doubting that the woman at the well didn't know she was a sinner? She had five failed marriages. She was living with a guy. She felt not only the shame, but the guilt of that sin. But don't ever miss the fact that she knew the stigma of even her birth. She was a Samaritan woman. Jews looked at them as dirty. They weren't allowed to testify in court because they were not even seen as human. So she is very aware of her inadequacies, and then it was like her behavior backed that up. It was a double whammy, but then she meets Jesus. Don't you recall it? She has this theological discussion with Christ about where the temple is supposed to be, and even Jesus looks at her and knows her and loves her, but he says, honey, you still need to know those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. In other words, the right knowledge of God was the only thing that was going to be able to change her life. And by the way, that's the only thing that's going to change yours or mine. So the gospel, my friends, is not you focused. The gospel is not for you. It's for the glory of God. The gospel benefits us. But the gospel is God-focused. We reap the glories of it, but the only way to truly know God is by virtue of acknowledging him, and you ready for this, disavowing yourself. The woman at the well is the positive illustration, but the rich young ruler is the negative. If you have a Bible with me, or you got, go to Mark chapter 10 and look at verse 17. Here is the exact opposite reaction from the woman at the well. Jesus is walking along, setting out on his journey, and this man runs up to him and watched the posture, knelt before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to notice that. He says, good teacher, and by the way, Jesus is going to challenge him on this, and the rich young ruler never responds. Notice, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Now, watch, no one is good except God alone. In other words, Jesus is challenging him and saying, if you're calling me good teacher, you're saying I'm God. Why are you saying I'm God? Then Jesus follows up, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice, he uses the six outward commandments. And what does the guy say? And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. You'll notice, there's no good teacher, second time, it's just teacher. He doesn't respond. He doesn't answer the question why he called Jesus good teacher, but the second time he just says, well, okay, then I don't think really you're God. So, teacher, I've kept all these things. And notice, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus looked at this man who was all put together and loved him like he looked at that Samaritan woman and loved her. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. But notice, he said to him, you lack one thing. 
go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And notice what Mark tells us, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. You know what? When he said good teacher and he knelt with that posture, Jesus exposed the fact that the first commandment says, thou shalt have no other God before me. The next commandment says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Good teacher. He was trying to manipulate Jesus. He was using it in vain. Then the next commandment, thou shalt not make any other graven images. You'll have nothing before me. And this guy went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. You see, this guy was good at looking good, but his heart said, I don't need God. I just want what God can give me. That's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. What a difference in reaction between this man and the woman at the well. The woman at the well ran away to tell others and invite others to know Jesus because Jesus knows her. Whereas the other walked away because he couldn't and wouldn't believe and trust the knowledge of Jesus about him. Do you see it? Jesus asked this man a couple of quick questions. And yet, Jesus loved him. So loving will not overcome truth. Did you see that? Rather, truth and love come together to form salvation. So stop and think about this. A relationship with God that equals eternal life means we not only have a relationship or a knowledge of God's holiness and his omniscience, but we also know his love, which means his sovereign control over all things, which is what verse 2 of John 17 tells us right away. And why is that important? Because to know God is to know that he knows everything, which means to know God is omniscient and knows everything means you can't fool him and you can't kind of manipulate him. It also means you can trust him. If he knows everything, you can trust his words. You can trust his knowledge. You can trust his knowledge of us and life and everything about life. You can trust God's view of right and wrong and how to live. We can trust him even when we don't understand. You can trust him. This is eternal life, to have God as Father, Jesus as Savior, the Holy Spirit as director and sealer of our lives. Have you learned this about God? That the God of the Bible, the true God, is a sovereign God who will be obeyed. And then finally, knowing God in Christ means having a growing knowledge of them. So we must have a knowledge of them. It must be an intimate relational knowledge, but it's a growing knowledge. According to John 17, 3, Jesus says to have eternal life is to know God, that he is the only true God. There is no other that he is made known by means of Jesus Christ whom the Father sent to the world. So, reading through Mark right now, right? Have you noticed how the disciples responded to this mission of Jesus? This is why I love my Bible, because there's no human heroes. The only hero of the Bible is God himself. And every one of us can find ourselves in the Bible. The first time Jesus tells the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, here's the plan. I'm going to go be betrayed. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. Remember what Peter does? Takes him aside and says, Uh, I don't like that plan. In fact, he not only says, I don't like the plan, Mark says he rebuked Jesus and basically had the gall to look Jesus in the eyes and go, that's a bad plan. But do you notice, watch the progression. The next time he told them it, Mark tells us that they were confused and they still didn't understand, but they wouldn't ask anything. In other words, there was resignation. 
First they opposed it, then they were afraid of it, then they were resigned to it. But then when you get to the end of Mark, and it actually came, Peter denies him and everybody else runs away from him. And yet, when Jesus rises from the dead, ascends and sends his spirit into them, once they went from simply knowing mentally to knowing experientially, and then from knowing in a growing faith, they not only embraced the mission, they were driven by it. Friends, this is my favorite statement of my entire sermon. Tim Keller says this, do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before there's a performance? Oh, that should lay you down to sleep at night. Only in the gospel of Jesus is the verdict, I love you, I forgive you, and you and I haven't done anything yet. You see, all true knowledge of God will involve a mutual loving discourse between you and God. Love desires knowledge of the person loved. If I said to you, I love Debbie, but I, want, I don't want to know her, none of you would believe that I loved her. You see, I love Debbie, therefore I'm driven to want to know her. If I simply lusted for Debbie, all I want to do is use her. And too many of us in the modern church, we lust for God. And thus, we only use him. Do you see the difference? God knows us perfectly and still loves us. He prays for us to know him and his Father. In other words, Jesus prays to the Father to help us love and know him. If that wasn't important, why would Jesus pray it? J.C. Ryle, again, sums this up so much. He says, to be born again is to enter into a new existence It's to have a new mind and a new heart and new views and new principles and a new taste, new affections, new likes and new dislikes, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God, ourselves, the world, the life to come in salvation. So Calvary, listen, the more you know God, the more you know Christ, the more you can show God and Christ to others. And if eternal life is knowing God, then knowing God must mean something that is actually able to affect our lives in the here and now. If you know God, then you trust him with your life. When you know God, you see your marriage through that lens. Remember what Paul Tripp said? Marriage isn't for your happiness. It's for your holiness. When you know God, you see your family through that lens. I told a young dad this particular week, you realize you are simply that boy's father, not his savior. He belongs more to God than he belongs to you. Jesus is every baby in this church's creator and savior. They are simply on loan to us as parents. And when you know God and you trust him, you see it through that. And so you see your health and your finances. Have you ever wondered what chapter in the Bible speaks to all of this the most? Because I think about these things, and I would submit it's Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is 176 verses of what's called an acrostic. In other words, the, the writer started with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and wrote eight verses, all beginning with that first letter, and then went to the second letter and wrote eight verses with the second letter of the alphabet, and did that through the entire 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and came up with 176 verses. And the psalm is known for things like the law of God and commandments and statutes and testimonies and all these things. But have you also ever noticed how the author describes these commandments? Psalm 119 is filled with words like blessed and praise. 
I delight, I meditate, I fix my eyes, I delight my heart, my mind will praise. My study Bible, my devotional Bible has Psalm 119, 18 on it, where the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Does that not sound personal and intimate and desperate and passionate? He goes on to say things like, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselor. Give me life according to your word. Don't you see it, friends? The author figured out to know God, to know his word, to know his law meant personal joy, peace, rest, fulfillment, satisfaction. It would free him from guilt and shame, would give him confidence. His claim that knowing God through his word heals him and heals his relationship. Are you seeing it? Why is it so important? Because we're living right here and right now in a culture, in the church, in this church, where our feelings, our search for meaning and significance is too me-centered and me-focused. How does this make me feel? What do I think? Does eternal life fit my needs? But do you know God enough to trust him to tell you what you need? Does Jesus overrule even your feelings? Peter knew this. When he would write to a church in 2 Peter 3, he said, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Almost sounds like he's reciting Jesus' prayer. You see, the more we know God's holiness and love, Jesus' mercy and grace, the more God is glorified. But the negative side of this, of course, is to know God and to know about God but not actually know him. Remember last month we read through Isaiah, and Isaiah 5.13, God says, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus would recite Isaiah, and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So dear friend, dear visitor, searcher, even if you consider yourself an adherent to Calvary or a member of Calvary Baptist Church, let's not forget how Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone will say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we do many mighty works in your name. And then Jesus says, God will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And as much as this is meant to warn us and shock us, there's actually an invitation here. Remember that video that I've referenced about? Alistair Begg says, don't ask me how I feel. Tell me what I need to know. Because Jesus would actually finish, after this acute warning, he finishes with, everyone who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man or woman who built his house on the rock. What is the rock? It's the rock of Jesus Christ. It's the rock of his word. It's the rock of the Bible. And notice, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it didn't fall because it was founded on the rock. The foolish person hears these words of mine and doesn't do them. You'll notice, it doesn't matter if you listen or don't listen, life still happens. Rain still falls, floods still come, winds still blow, the house is still beaten on. The difference is what happens to your life when you face life. Now, I talked about someone, because just before COVID, at one of the largest conferences in North America, a well-known woman by the name of Beth Moore said these words. 
you will watch a generation of Christians, of Christians, set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. Stunningly, she says, it will sound completely plausible, and this will be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes to the newest and youngest generation. Sacrifice truth for love's sake. She says, you will rise or fall on whether or not you will sacrifice one for the other. Will you have the courage to live the tension of both truth and love? And she quotes 2 John 6, and this is love that you walk according to or in the knowledge of his commandments. I agree with every word she said. And I warn you that even three and a half years later, she needs to listen to her own words. I asked you all in the beginning, have you ever asked Jesus to pray for you? Have you? Have you ever gone to God with the questions of life? Is it a relationship with God and Jesus by his Holy Spirit? Do you acknowledge that you are both known and loved by God so that like the woman at the well, you are desperate to know and driven to love God? Or do we treat God like the rich young ruler, like a genie in a bottle, or, or like... like, like Karma or Murphy's Law, or you've heard me talk about country music Jesus. I'll come to you, Jesus, and do whatever you say, but then, God, you got to give me my marriage back. You got to give me my kids and my health, and give me a job and more money, and give me power or friends or influence. But young people, especially, you know the difference between a question and a prayer? Humility. James tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, in 2023, the proud says, God, I've got a lot of questions, and you're going to take my tests, and I'm going to demand some answers. But humility says, oh, God, Father God, Jesus Savior, I've got a lot of needs. Would you help me? And men and women, friends, listen to me. I'm sorry for what you've been through or what you're going through right now. And I know I know that if you're being honest, brutally honest, you can say, Steve, I have been to hell and back on earth. And I know that it doesn't make sense. And it seems like there's just way too much evil. And I know that you've got a lot of needs. And quite honestly, I don't always have, and people around you won't always have the answers. But here is what I do know. I have a God who answers prayer. And I know a God who gives eternal life. A God who sent his son to live and die for us. A God who delights to hear us cry out. To not simply yell out in pain, but who says, come to me all you who labor and and I will give you rest. Scotty Smith says, increasingly I see my own need for leaning on the everlasting arms. Along with reaffirming daily that Jesus is my only righteousness and comfort and hope. Along with the fact that I need to walk closely with gospel saying, growing in grace, friends. You see, good works will not save people, but save people do good works. Why? Because of the knowledge and love of God. Good words do not save people, but saved people speak good words. Why? Because the knowledge and love of God controls them. Our words are an indication of our health, of our soul, and the level of our Christian understanding. So are you the woman at the well this morning or the rich young ruler? Will you be known by God and then know God's love, or will you know of God but love your life and your stuff? 
Remember that great song, Oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. So it is only when you look upon the atoning love of Jesus, seeing by faith the marks of his death for your sin, that you truly know God in his glory and grace. In this way, you will receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, worshiping him in his redeeming grace, and you will know God, and you will have eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, this verse has captured my heart and my soul. Lord, I'm not trying to be critical of my upbringing. I am thankful for my parents and for those that loved and preached to me. But Lord, I do regret, and I don't want the young men and women, even to the older men and women right here before me and online, to get lost and simply, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm converted, but to miss the knowledge of knowing to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. Where the verdict is already in before the performance is ever asked. Where Jesus looks at us and loves us, knowing everything about us. Lord, help us to not be proud, but humble. Revive us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.